Hi, everyone. It's Mark. I appreciate you all waiting the five minutes. We just wanted to get everybody on as uh, the stragglers came in around noon. So thank you for taking some time this afternoon. As usual, we're going to try and make this um, about a half hour conversation where we try and update you on the markets. And, and as always, my goal in this, and I'm going to try and highlight this today, is to make a, a very complicated time, I think, for all of us as simple and easy to understand as possible. As I go through some of the attached charts, and I know some of you will be listening on your phone, so to the extent I can talk away from the charts, I'll do that. Um, I, I think it's important to try and give clarity about where we are in markets. I started doing this every two weeks as we started with the coronavirus, stretched it to every three. I'm now doing this about once a month, and I, I try not to time this with down days and, and pullbacks in the market, but. I guess I'm the bearer of bad news because I think once we scheduled this on Thursday, markets were down, you know, 2,000 points. So, so my apologies for that in advance. Um, quick that up, update on us and the team. Everyone is safe. We're still fully functional. Um, we're, we are starting to think about what the New York office's return to work plan will be. That I think will largely be dependent on government officials. And, and we at Bernstein, like every major company in America, have a million different phases of how we will slowly get staff from, you know, a skeletal staff to a third to a half back to full staff in the coming, um, I think that's really months as, as um, data changes in New York. And, and that'll be the same for our offices all around the country and world. So with that as a backdrop, I am going to start this presentation with the scorecard that we use every time. I have made some changes to it, both to update where we are, and, and maybe even more importantly, to try and give a little bit more clarity as to, to how I'm thinking about the market. I think the important thing here is to not get lost in the day-to-day -day news. And if you break the world into three factors, I used to have two in this chart, the health outcome, coronavirus, the economy, and economic policy, that will tell you exactly what's going to happen in the market. I mean, I think it's clear as day, whether it's day-to-day, week-to-week, or month-to-month. So let's just think about where we were, and I'm going to focus more on where we are today. And, and I think the biggest question that I, I get from clients, friends, family is like, the, the world is terrible. How is the market essentially flat for the year? It, it's now off 5%, but, but we were flat before the sell-off late last week. And so let's go through this chart. I'm probably gonna spend a disproportionate amount of this call on this chart, but I think this is the way that you can think about where we've been, where we are, and where we're going in a really simple and accurate way. You are gonna see lots of really smart people from our firm or other firms on Bloomberg, CNBC, publishing all of these papers about data and everything. But I really think anyone can just break this into health, economy, policy, score it, and you're going to get your answer. So when this all started, February, March, the health situation was terrible, and we feared it was going to be really dire. That's a double negative. It's not just bad. It's really bad. The economy was in freefall, and we had no economic policy response. And fiscal and monetary means one from the central bank and two means from, just broadly speaking, Congress, right? So fiscal and monetary policy. And when everything on the chart is negative, the, the, the equal sign, that's six negatives. It's a minus six. And what's the market reaction? You're in free fall. As we get into mid-March, the health still is really bad. I mean, this is when the ships are heading to New York, right? So, so, so the, the health situation is bad and fears that it's going to be, again, 
terribly dire. The economy is in free fall, another double negative, minus four, but you're starting to get policy responses from, from Treasury. All of a sudden, you take it from uh, minus six to four negatives and a plus minus three. Market bottoms, right? Goes from free fall to boom. And, and that's where monetary policy, monetary policy the, the central bank starts to, to put a, a floor under everything. That plus should actually be in the monetary policy column, not the fiscal. As we get into late March, early April, you have this rapid rise. And, and why is that? Well, now all of a sudden, Congress passes that really big economic stimulus package. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. The central bank, Jay Powell, is still there printing money, backstopping everything he can find. So those are both pluses. The economy is terrible. The health outcome is bad, but with all this social distancing, it looks like it's not gonna be as dire as we thought. And now my minus three is a minus one. Hey, relatively speaking, that's a hell of a lot better than where we just were, let alone where we were six weeks ago. And the market rips forward. Then you go to mid-April, mid-May. The health outcome is still bad, but again, pretty much the same. Not as bad as we feared. We don't have a cure. We don't have really any treatment, so it's still negative. The economy is all of a sudden slowly starting to reopen. We're out of full shutdown. So the economic story is bad, but it's not as bad. And the policy perspective is we still got the central bank doing everything it can, and it looks as though Congress is at that point done with um, any more support after the initial CARES Act. And basically, we're range-bound. And where are we today? This is late June, but you could take this up to today. From a health perspective, look, we know it's not good, but, but we really don't know what the future holds. Will it get worse as, as some of these states relax their measures? Will it not? Is it seasonal? Will there be cure, vaccine? I, I think you'd have to say, look, it's generally not good, right? It's not like there's no coronavirus, and, but we don't really know where we're going. So I put a question mark. The economy forward from here, I mean, look, we know we're starting from a bad base, but, but from here, I, I think it's highly uncertain. I, I think this whole chart is about right now the humility to put question marks up there. And from a policy perspective, we know, and it, it's not that you know, I'm or the firm is so smart, Jay Powell, the, 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 the head of the Fed, has overtly said, hey, I'm, I'm going to do everything I can here. So he's still a plus. But will there be more stimulus from Congress? Your guess is as good as mine. So I've got to put a, a question mark there. And so I'm left with a market that is entirely data dependent. My score is a zero. It's a lot of question marks. I know that's not terribly insightful. I'll tell you what the impact is to how you should invest in a second. But you're left with a market that is very manic and, and grasping for straws, either good or bad. You could see that, right? As, as people worried about a second wave and you take that question mark and maybe that question mark becomes a minus, markets sell off really, really terribly when there were days where the unemployment numbers were a heck of a lot better than they were initially anticipated to be, market went straight up, right? If there's talk that there can be a second stimulus, remember the Dems passed an additional three trillion in the House, that was a non-starter in the, in the Senate. But if something like that were to pass tomorrow and you put a plus in the fiscal category, market's gonna love that. If it's clear that the central bank's out of the game, and that plus becomes a question or a negative, markets are gonna fall off. And, and that's really what happened late last week, right? Not only was there fear of a, a, a second wave, take that question mark and make it a negative, but Jay Powell said, hey, I'm gonna keep rates low. 
So the U.S. Fed says, I'll keep rates low, but I don't know if I'm going to do anything more right now. And that, that plus kind of becomes a question mark. And now you've got a page with lots of questions, lots of negatives and no positives. And the market sells off 2,000 points. So I don't mean to oversimplify everything, but you, know, you can get lost in a whole lot of technical data. You can watch CNBC, Fox Business, read the Wall Street Journal all day. And, and I actually think it's this simple. Now, it's this simple, prognosticating from here, nearly impossible. And so what do you do sitting here today with that scorecard? How should one be positioned? Well, I, I think there's a, a few answers to that. The first is, and I'm sorry, this is probably going to sound like a broken record. Depends. Depends on who you are. So if you're thinking about your portfolio from, you know, the basic balanced portfolio, growth and income, you want to try and make money over time, but you also don't want to be exposed to wild swings in the market. I think with the, with the question marks on this page and the market essentially flat, given all that it's been through, I think you should be at your target asset allocation. So if you're a 30 stock client of mine or an 80 stock client of mine, I think you should be at that target asset allocation or slightly underweight. Because given all the question marks and the fact that the market is back to where it was essentially when all this started, I think you should be target to slightly underweight. If you're the opportunistic type of investor who says, look, I'm in it for the long term, I can live with volatility, I, I, I'm probably I'm at least 60, 70, 80, 90, 100% equity exposure by nature. And I'm really trying to find places for outsized return. We did a call earlier about that. And, and you can grab that call through my podcast channel. But there are places like distressed debt, the high yield markets. And oh, by the way, when the equity markets sell off, to step in and buy equities at a discount, whether those are specific stocks or more broadly the indices, we can debate that. But if you're willing to live with significant volatility for outsized return, and I'm not suggesting everyone on this is that, is that person, I think the vast majority are not, you can be very opportunistic in this space. Let me take this scorecard and turn it into a chart. So here's my recovery scorecard. On the up and down axis is the score I gave it, okay? The right is time as we move through time. And this is the sharp sell-off, the bottom, and then as we've moved forward. And, and late May was, was when we got to that zero on the prior page where we were data dependent. If, if I did it through today, that would be coming down, right, with the news of the last week. This, score, this is literally just the scorecard plotted, right? I'm not trying to do any specific graph about the market or anything. I'm just taking my, you know, very simpleton scorecard. And if you lay that against the S&P 500, which is right below, that's the market. The scorecard and the market look nearly identical. And I'm not cherry picking the data, right? I'm just going through my scorecard and saying, what's, how bad's the health story? How bad or okay is the economy? What's the policy response? And that tells you what the market's going to do. So I think it's instructive to, to try and not get overly whipsawed, overly lost in certain data points. And as I say that, I'm now going to go deep, dig deep into the data as to how you should think about portfolios, the market, and, and where you go from here. Because where we've been, I think, tells you a lot about where we're going. 
Now, my next comments, I'm basically going to take the health economy and policy and, and dive into each part and, and try and put some of the stuff we've heard day to day in, in context. A lot of these charts are not Bernstein. They're, they're charts that Amanda and I have collected over the last week or two that were some of the most interesting and, and I think insightful charts that, that we have seen. So here are rising and falling new corona cases, um, change in the number of cases compared to 14 days ago. So it's not an absolute data, right? We know New York has been the hot zone for a very long period of time, but it's green on this chart because the data is decreasing and places like Arizona, Texas, and Florida are in the red because the, the, the count is increasing, right? There's a strong increase in the data number. I, I would tell you, I, I think you have to be cautious to look at US data as a whole because, and this is gonna sound very silly, it is a very big country. And, and, I, and I did some calculations over the weekend. I mean, I, I think even saying the term calculation is, is almost exaggerating the point to say, okay, if you're in New York and you're thinking about Texas or Florida or Phoenix, what's really the impact on your local community? So, so think about this. New York to Phoenix is over 2,000 miles directly. Now think about what the distance is from Italy, Milan, which was the European center, to London. That's 500 miles apart. So, you know, if you think about the Italian data and then you compare it to the data in the UK as two separate worlds, but then you think of the Arizona and the New York data as one country, one world, I think that's, that, that's misplaced, right? Because of distance. Viruses don't know boundaries. They're not, they don't get their, their passports checked at the border, right? They're, they're agnostic to where they're going. Distance is the big deal here. So when you think about you know, London to, to, to Milan, which again, Northern Italy was the initial European hotbed, that, that's, that's a little bit further than the Northeast Corridor, I-95, Boston to DC, right? Yes, we obviously care about what's happening in Florida and Texas, and it has economic ramifications, and, and I'll show you that. But for the listeners here who are based in New York, New York to Miami is over a thousand miles. New York to, to Houston is more than that. So you've got to really try and, as you think about this, think about it from a very local standpoint. And one of the reasons why I think that's important, I'll show you this in a few charts, is, is percent of GDP open and closed in the country. Because at the high point, 50% of businesses were closed in this country. It, it is clear that we are slowly starting to open up. And now the percent of businesses closed is it's about 25 to 28%. So, so it's changing, right? We, we are slowly opening up. And that is good from an economic standpoint, but again, it's going to be a balancing act of what the economic impact is versus the health. And so if you look at, th this chart's two weeks old, but I think it gives you a feel, the different states in the country and what their status is from opening to slowly reopening to shut down and what their GDP is, you can see most of this chart visually is green. These states are open or partially open. Although the chart looks almost entirely green, it's only 56% of the, the country's GDP. Um, as of this chart, about two weeks ago, May 25th, the only two states that were really shut down and restricted were Illinois and New Jersey. You'd say that's nothing on the chart, but it's nearly 10% of the US GDP. And in the orange, in the starting to open or reopening soon categories, and we all know New York has lots of different phases, you know, you just really see New York, California, a little bit on this chart along the coast, but that's a third of the country's economy. 
So again, you know, you have to take a, a, a local view as to what the policy is, and then in those states, what's their economic impact on the country? Okay. A chart we saw this morning that we thought was really interesting is, so to the notion of is things, is the world, is the economy getting back to normal? This is from Apple about mobility. Are, are people driving? Are they taking mass transit? Are they walking? goes back to the start of the year. And so, so zero, the zero point is where we start the year. Well, obviously at the, at the height of the crisis, walking and driving was down 40, 50, almost 60%. Mass transit was down close to 80%. And from the Apple data, if you look, driving and walking is basically back to or ahead of where we were on January 1st. Again, nationally, this will be different in different parts of the country. Mass transit, Remember, mass transit is likely to be the areas that are the most densely populated, most urban centers. There's not a lot of mass transit in the country. There's a, in, the, in the countryside, a lot more in urban population centers. Mass transit's down 60% still. So we're moving, but how we're moving, how we're opening has adjusted. And, and I think for places like New York, the transit question is gonna be a big part of this. Now people are spending money, the, the, the question is where? And, and I think this chart is really interesting because it breaks things down by industry. And, and I think if you just think about your life, your friends, and where and how you're spending your money, your discretionary items, your non-discretionary money, and there's lots of data about this, but you know, this is, it tells you that you can't look at one level of economic data and draw any conclusion because the red on this chart is really bad data. The yellow is, as you'd expect, fair. The green is good. So just jump to you know, the red lines, right? What are the parts of the economy that are really in trouble? It wouldn't surprise you. People are not spending. Daily spending change on airlines, lodging, and entertainment is terrible, right? Down 80 90%. Shouldn't surprise you. Restaurants are down a lot. But remember, there still is takeout and delivery. So they're down a lot, but different transit terrible numbers. Online electronics, those numbers look good. Hello, Amazon, right? Hello, Netflix. Um, total online retail, those numbers up a lot. Home improvement up. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to have said something along the lines of, well, since I'm not taking this trip or I'm not spending on that, I'm going to do XYZ to my home or to my backyard. So money's being spent, but where it's being spent, very different. And so you've got change in consumer behavior through this COVID-19 crisis. And you know this, right? I've talked about this every two, three, four weeks. So I think we can go through this quickly and I don't wanna to go through it too quickly to minimize it, but the unemployment rates are scary off the chart numbers with the underemployed number close to 20, 25% and the unemployed number um, call it 13, 14, 15% from the, the latest data. That is materially worse than in our prior recessions, the Great Recession of 08, 09, dot-com bubbles, and, and not only the, the magnitude of it, but the speed of it, right? Those, those charts are just straight up. There is no gradual increase. It's just directly up. And the question will be, and I, I don't have an answer here, is that recovery going to be what they talk about V-shaped coming straight down? That would be an upside down V, or will it be more gradual? And, and, and some of the data supports that the, the, the employment numbers are going to come back 
actually relatively quickly, but the economic toll will, will be very large in totality. We know that the government, so, you know, I, I tried to touch on the, the health as we started this and what's going on in the economy. I, I want to transition a bit with the economy and how public policy has impacted the economy. So complicated chart, but I think there are a few instructive things here to, to take from what's going on in people's balance sheets at their homes, right? So this is what the government puts in people's wallets in various ways regularly. The chart goes back to 2015. Social security, I'm not arguing good or bad, right? But the government makes payments to people in the form of social security. That's the green on this chart. That number is fairly consistent, right? It's grown a little over time, but it's fairly consistent. Medicare and Medicaid is the, is the gray. That's a way that the government helps support people. Uh, you can see that chart fairly consistent over time, slow tick up, nothing crazy. Um, there are other types of ways that the government supports people, other sorts of programs, and, and there's unemployment insurance. You can see unemployment is a number that pops up on this chart. It's actually always there, very small as a percentage of all spending after Medicaid and, Medi and Medicare and Social Security. But as we get to now, all of a sudden that yellow jumps up on your chart. But the red number is what is the biggest change. And, and what that is, is those $600 um, CARES Act stimulus checks, right? Those direct payments, the PPP loans, the, the $600 of, of um, unemployment or, or extra benefit that people received at home was a massive transfer into people's pockets, right? Much larger than Social Security, much larger than Medicaid, Medicare. Uh, those are not going to be constant, right, unless there's another stimulus bill. So all of a sudden, people got a, a, a massive influx of capital into their wallets. Not everybody, and, and massive is probably a, a heartless term by me, but additional capital that they otherwise hadn't been getting from the government in the past. And I know $600 a week is not a lot, but when you combine it over the millions and millions of people who received it, it's a significant amount of money transferred from the government to people's balance sheets. So why did that matter? Why does it matter, right? No political statement here, but what it meant is that, well, two things, right? Uh, I'll jump ahead a chart. People's savings rates, their percentage of disposable income went up materially in the early parts of this crisis. Generally speaking, people's spending was down. You saw that on the prior charts but they got a, a big transfer of, of money from the government to their, to their bank. And then the question was, well, did they use it or spend it? And there's been different data points here. Bank of America has some data on, on this, but the, the general idea is that people said, you know what, I don't know what's gonna happen from here. I'm not gonna spend every dollar I just got from the government, I'm gonna save it. So savings rates went through the roof, as you can see on this chart. That will help buffer for some time if people can't get back to work quickly, but it's not going to save them for six or nine or 12 months. And that's where you might need more of that additional stimulus. But if you disaggregate and take out those one-time payments and you look at people's personal incomes, so the transfer receipts that people received on that prior chart you saw were really high. Employee compensation 
went down a lot, right? Because people lost their jobs and that made the savings rate go up. Here's the worry. When those $600 checks are gone and if there's no more um, support from the government, the unemployment benefits, which are the blue on this chart, do not nearly offset the loss of people's wages. Now, you may have heard this, we saw this, um, Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan estimated that 50 to 70% of people who had lost their job were better off on unemployment benefits, which had been increased plus the extra $600 than they were when they were working. We think that number's high. Uh, we don't agree with that number, but the point is that there has been some percentage of people who actually were, were better off financially not working than they were working. But those $600 checks are not gonna last forever and neither were the increases to unemployment benefits. So while that may look okay in the short term on some of these charts, here's the chart that would give you reason to worry. Unemployment benefits are just a fraction of what the loss of wages is. So this is why the notion of getting people back to work in some capacity is important because otherwise the government's gonna have to continue to spend to keep people whole or as close as a whole as they can be. I should say what you've seen from our government, and this is a very complicated chart. You can look at it at another time. It's pretty, it's colorful. But the point of this chart is just to say that what's going on in the US is not unique, right? Central banks, governments around the world, the Eurozone, countries outside of, of the Euro, like Switzerland or Great Britain, North America, us in Canada, Asia, the emerging markets, they have all taken lots of policy measures, some the same, some different, from both a monetary perspective, um, things that they've done with the banks, things that they've done with their currencies, things that they've done for borrowers, to try and support their economies, whether it was cutting interest rates, whether it was changing loans to business, whether it was changing lending standards. The point is what's going on in the US, not, not just from a health perspective, I mean, you, you know the, the health perspective story is, is global. The economic impact, but the monetary policy and fiscal policy response has been global as well. I, I assume that most of you don't get up in the morning and wanna know, you know what the Indian Central Bank has done to support the Indian economy, but for the two seconds that we're talking about it here, or you look at this chart, you can see that whether it's Russia, Poland, Turkey, um, Korea, Japan, you pick your place. The, the story's been very similar. Maybe the tools are different, but, but you have, uh, it's really interesting, right? You have a, a global pandemic and you really have global science and global economic policy working to fight the impact of the, the virus. And, and where that's gonna land, I mean, obviously none, none of us know, but you, you have coordinated it medical, scientific and economic policy response globally against what is a global economic and health threat. Don't think we thought we'd be having that conversation, but we are. And it's important that you know that it is a global response. So there's been a big topic of late that I think is worth taking five minutes to talk about because it has gotten some press and I think it's really interesting and this chart that's up there from Bloomberg will probably do very little to um, mean anything to you in, until I get into it. But clearly the market has been really volatile and, and there have been um, 
stories, articles, et cetera, written about what the impact is of the retail investor, mom and pop, not big hedge funds, not big institutions like us or Vanguard or Fidelity, what the impact of people trading at home has been on the market. And I think the answer to that is through this period, it's been meaningful. And I'll, I'll give you some data to support that, both in terms of the change in the retail investor and then how it's impacting stocks, specifically on the market, and I'll bring you to this chart. But let me give you a, a feel for this. Um, Robinhood is like a, 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 a free online trading platform. It's, it's got a lot of venture capital money. They opened 3 million new accounts for trading in the first quarter. Uh, TD Ameritrade, opened over 600,000 accounts in first quarter, tripled their number from last year. Schwab opened 600,000 accounts, a record for them. E-Trade opened 300,000 accounts, double their number from last year. Why am I telling you this? Because what it tells you is there has been a massive influx of new, I don't wanna use the word investors, but players into the market. Because when we think about investors, we typically think about clients who are thinking about how do I get a pool of capital from point A to point B 10, 20, 30 years from now. And then I think more about traders as whether they're professional traders or someone sitting at home, someone who's trying to make money day to day and willing to take a lot of risk and that may or may not work out. Well, you're talking about millions upon millions of new accounts in the first half of the year lots of new investors with little to no experience in the market who have been effectively day trading the most thinly state traded stocks in the market. And let me give you some examples of that. Um, two of the most traded stocks right now on the Robinhood platform are DraftKings and Penn National Gaming. Now, you could make a lot of conclusions from that. One that I'll make is both of them are gambling stocks. And what I think is happening, and you've seen articles about this, is people who were busy and were sports gamblers are now home alone without sports to gamble on. And I think there is a real market now of gambling going on in the market. And you can see this in some of the thinliest traded stocks you can find, right? Um, here's an example. The first chart on this list is Hertz, HTZ. Um, Hertz has declared bankruptcy. Hertz, by the way, today got um, approval from the bankruptcy court to issue a billion dollars of additional stock. I think they're actually going to go out and try and raise $500 million of additional stock. In that offering, they said, we think our stock is worthless and will be worthless in the future. Usually not the best way to try and raise money. I should note that because um, Hertz is basically getting delisted from the New York Stock Exchange now. It was trading at 40 cents a share on May 26th it was up 475% since then. It's the most popular on this list. And when the market sold off the last few days, so the five-day return on Hertz was 208%. This is for a virtually bankrupt company who was saying in their offering memorandum, unless travel and COVID changes quickly, we're not even sure if our bondholders will get repaid and our equity is worthless and the stock was up 200%. It was down 39% the day the market sold off 5%. Um, the following day, it was down 19.4%. And this morning, it's down another 22%. Um, this is not 
intelligent money trying to determine what the future of Hertz will be and what it's worth in a bankruptcy or what its acquisition target is. This is people literally just going to the casino. Um, there are lots of stocks on this list that are literally penny stocks. Um, the third stock here is trading at 18 cents. You've got a stock, two other stocks that are dollar stocks, I mean, penny stocks that are moving at enormous prices. Um, now, there are other stocks like Tesla that you know, or companies on this list like American Airlines, Delta, Carnival, um, American, o uh, American Airlines that are being impacted by this rush of retail money that is trading in the most volatile parts of the market. Um, it tends to be oil, cruise ships, airlines, casinos. And so why does that also matter? Well, the, the way things work in any market, think about the housing market. I always think this is a, a way to make a very simple comparison. You know, your house is worth what one person is willing to buy it for. So just to make it easy, and a round number, if you think your house is worth a million dollars and everyone thinks it's worth a million dollars, and everyone agrees it's worth a million dollars, but someone walks by and says, I'll give you two million for it, you take it. And now your house is a $2 million house. That's the most recent price discovery. It may not fundamentally be worth a million dollars, but it just traded for two million bucks. And so now it's a $2 million house. And if the guy who bought it a year later wants to sell it and everyone says, you know what, it's a million dollar house. And the only person willing to buy it is willing to pay 800,000 for it for whatever reason. That $2 million house is now an $800,000 house, trades at 800,000. Most people always thought it was a million dollar house, but they weren't in the business of trading the house. They liked where they lived. They thought your house was worth a million bucks. They were staying home. But the marginal buyer, the person who transacted, the person who bought the house for two set the price, and then the person who bought it for 800,000 set the price. That is a really big deal because most shares don't trade every day, right? We price stocks based on what the, the last trade was, the marginal trade. When you have lots of people coming into the market with effectively a gambling slash casino mentality and they are the marginal trader, you're gonna have Hertz up and down 200% within a week based on no fundamental change in the story. Right? I'm not sure that Royal Caribbean or Delta or Carnival has fundamentally changed the view of those companies, but those stocks are moving 20, 30% a day. And that is a complete disconnect from fundamental reality. Um, I'm cherry picking a handful of stocks on this chart and the following, same exact 10 stocks, right? Down 19%, 19%, 14%, 18%. That has an impact on how these markets are trading. So I, I think that's worth thinking about. I think it's worth trying to give some context today because that's going to be a topic um, that I think you're going to read about in the coming week. And the question will be, where will those marginal traders be? Um, a month, six months from now, when they're back at work, sports are back in play and they're betting elsewhere. Um, the guy who runs Barstool Sports now said he's a big day trader. I think he lost $3 million in his first week. So, you know, look, that's a, that is a different dynamic in this market where you have people at home trying to play. Um, one of the questions we got, no chart related to this was, 
there's been some discussion and it's a pivot to politics and the election that if Biden were to be the, the um, winner of the election, that you should sell off your stocks now because that would be trouble for the market. Um, I, I've talked about in prior conversations that it is very hard to make any sort of correlation between politics, the presidency or Congress and the market. The, the only clear correlation we found in our research is that markets tend to prefer divided government, whether it's Republicans in the executive and Democrats in the House or Senate, just basically not everything being red or everything being blue because markets like stability and when you have a, a, a split power, it's less likely legislation is passed. So we found that to be a correlation. I, I, I think the, the, if you go back to this in earlier chart, health economy policy, and you try and connect it to the election, like I think the, the, the one thing you could argue is that given all the spending that we've had to do from a fiscal and monetary policy standpoint, at some point, Right, and at some point could be decades from now, but at some point, uh, we're, we as a society, we as Americans, the, the government balance sheet is going to have to get cleaned up for the amount that we've spent today. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that Democrats are likely to do that through higher taxation, right? So I don't think that the outcome of the election is going to tell you much about what's going to happen to the stock market, but it could tell you what it would be on tax policy. Now, you'd have to be ahead of this. You'd have to have some certainty. And, and look, there's a lot that's going to go into that. But if someone had large gains in their portfolio because of a single stock position or what have you, it might make sense to take, to take and pay taxes now in an environment where tax rates are at nearly historic lows on capital gains versus what they're likely to be in the future under any administration, but, but probably more likely so under a democratic administration. So you might want to accelerate sales now in a lower tax environment than it would be in the future. If you have losses in your portfolio, that may not even be an issue, right? But I, I don't believe that the, the outcome of the presidency is gonna have direct impact on the, the focus of the market. It's also gonna depend what the response is, right? Yeah, to the extent that Democrat and or Republican lawmakers are more willing to spend the government's checkbook to support the economy with another um, fiscal stimulus package, that's gonna help. You could argue Democrats or Republicans are more or less likely to do that. Um, and the executive branch may more or less likely to do that, whether it was Biden or Trump. But I, I think if you think it through the, 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 the place, I think you'd have the most certainty is under taxes. And what you know today is tax rates are really low. All right, so let me stop there. It's, it's been about 30, 35 minutes. Um, just one other um, point of context. So in outside of these webinars, I think most people know that I host a podcast, Mark to Markets. We've done deeper dives on the impact of COVID-19 on the restaurant industry, on the sports and entertainment space. Um, in the next week or two, we're gonna do what the impact has been on, on hospitals and healthcare and their business models and their ability to provide service. And all of these webinars from the past are, are also logged on um, Mark to Market. So if, if you'd like to get those and you can't find them, reach out to Amanda, Samra, or myself, and we can provide that to you as well. With that, thank you for your time. I know it was long and it was just one voice today. So if I haven't um, driven you crazy, thank you. And if I have, I apologize. Any questions or comments, as always, reach out to Amanda or myself. And most importantly, stay safe. Thanks.